you, everyone. Thank you for being here today for this continuation of the series called Life After Life. Thank you for choosing to, uh, to be a part of our service today. If you're guests visiting with us, thank you for being here. Hey, let's spend a little bit of time talking about uh, an incredible reality that is available, that is the inheritance, the possession of the one who has received Jesus and whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We've been talking in this series about life after life, and we've covered the different stages. We've covered 1.0 version, which is here and now, 2.0 version, which is the intermediate state, and now we're talking about the 3.0 version. Last week, we talked about the day of judgment, when we'll all stand before God and give an account of our lives. And we talked about the reality of a very real heaven and a very real uh, permanent place called the lake of fire, where death and Hades are thrown into. And the great separation happens based on whose name is written or whose names are written in the book of life. If your name is there, you receive the inheritance called heaven. If it is not there, then there is, there is this casting out of the presence of God into what's called the lake of fire. And the lesson last week was you don't want to go to the lake of fire. Whatever it is and how long it lasts, you don't want to go there. God has prepared a place and made available for you an opportunity to spend forever with him. Last week at our church, 15 plus people raised their hand to receive Christ last week. And we celebrate that. That's a big deal. If you were one of those individuals who raised their hand and said, I want to make sure that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, if you have not followed up with us and taken your next step to understand what it looks like to be baptized by following Christ in obedience through baptism or in engaging in this relationship, I'm going to encourage you to visit our Next Steps uh, kiosk or booth uh, uh, or desk, excuse me, out in the lobby just after service. So we're talking about 3.0. We're talking about what it looks like now to enter into this, this eternal state in Christ as a believer. John, in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, is going to write to us about that. He's going to give us the physical description, the physical description of a place called the New Jerusalem and also this place called the New Heavens and the New Earth. One of the things I think John wants to do more than anything else outside of being obedient and writing down exactly what Jesus asked him to write down, one of his goals here is clearly to describe a physical place in which we will dwell. John is writing in the first century against Gnosticism or dualism, the idea that the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. John is saying, no, you will receive a resurrected body, a physical body, and you will exist in a physical place called the new heavens and the new earth, and you will experience the new Jerusalem, which are physical locations in which we will all get to enjoy those who are in the Lamb's Book of Life. John is going to help us understand in vivid detail what that place or that, that, that physical reality looks like. Before we get there, though, a couple of verses. Jesus, in talking to his disciples, just, just uh, a short time before he leaves this, wor this world, in John 14, says these words. Let's not, let not your hearts be troubled. Now think about the connection here for a moment, church. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You have a thousand things going on and a million struggles, and you have challenges on this earth, and there are things that tend to overwhelm you here. Don't be overwhelmed by them. Why? Because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to repair a place for you, my promise to you is that I'm coming back to get you so that where I am, there you might be also. And he gives this description. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. 
And I'm going there to repair a place for you, and I'm coming back. And then Thomas is, of course, confused. He's the doubter of the bunch. And he said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way to this place? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm going to prepare a physical place for you. Now, in in Hebrews chapter uh, 11, and you're welcome to turn there with me if you'd like to, but in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, uh, the author of Hebrews recognizes that, that all the promises of God given to us here pale in comparison to the promise of this physical place called the new heavens and the new earth. That's why in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 13, as, as the author is writing about these heroes of our faith, he says these words, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers here on earth. C.S. Lewis likes to help us understand that, 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 there's something, that there's something within the heart of man. No matter how wonderful life could be here, there's still something in us that longs for something more. That even though we are Christians here, we still feel like aliens and strangers. Like this is not the complete picture. Like there's still something missing. This is what the author of Hebrews is describing. That these heroes of our faith experience. And, and this is what he says. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of, uh, of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country. A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. A city for the believer. I think Paul may have got a glimpse of this. Remember when Paul says that, um, that he knew a guy who was caught up? You ever used that phrase before? I knew a guy once. We usually use that to describe some kind of fallacy and fault within ourselves, but we don't want to actually say ourselves. I don't really struggle with alcohol, but I know a guy. You know what I'm saying? Paul uses this phrase here. I I knew a guy who was once caught up. He had a chance to see a vision, to see a realm that he could not see with his physical eyes. I think Paul got a glimpse as well. That's why he would write these words that he's torn. Because on one hand, he he understands that there is work to be done here. But on the other hand, he longs to be there. Where is there? With God. In his presence. I think that's that's the, 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 the tension that exists in the heart of someone who understands what's ahead for us. That, that we have work to do here and we're doing that work, but we long to be there. Where is there and what does it look like? Let's, let's, let's look in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 and let's understand John's perspective. I've read Revelation 21 and 22 maybe a hundred times in my life. I love these two, past, these, two, these two chapters in Scripture. They are the end of the story. I always like to get to the end of the story to see how it all kind of wraps up. And it's a pretty good news for the Christian. It all wraps up pretty well. And at the end of the story, we see John's description. I've read this so many times that I was very disappointed in myself not to see something that I just found in my research and study this week. This may not be new to you. It was new to me, and I thought it was fascinating to see. One of the things that John describes for us in his perspective is he describes different views of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. 
And this is the perspective. John has an opportunity to see a long way away. He gets a chance to see the whole of the new creation. And then he takes a step closer into into this this new created uh, universe and, and, and earth. And he gets a chance to see the city. And ultimately, he's going to take another step inside the city to describe what he sees in the actual physical city. Now, I don't know why that was new to me. But it was fascinating to me to see John getting a chance to zoom into the very throne of God. But he starts with a wide-angle view of the entirety of what God is going to make new. And so John starts there after the great white throne judgment in Revelation 21 and 22. He begins to show us what he sees. What does he see? Well, I want to show you first, and I'm not going to read these verses. I'm just going to unpack them for you this morning. You're welcome to read them. Uh, at any time you want. But Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, we get John's view from far away. He's zoomed out. Now, what does he see as he zoomed out? We see this. John says, Then I saw the new heavens and the new earth, for the first earth and first heavens pass away. Now, some people believe that when John sees this, that he's seeing the, 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 the world in which we live no longer in existence. That's not what's going on here, because later in the text, John sees that, that God says he's making everything new. So for the believer, after judgment, we're going to experience not a, not a totally brand new, unmade earth or universe, but a remade, reborn, uh, glorified, perfect heaven and earth. John is seeing this zoomed out view and he sees the entire creation being made new in an instant by the power and and, and might of God himself. Uh, uh, Randy Alcorn in his book Heaven describes this in vivid detail. I don't have time to unpack this in detail, but he describes Jupiter and Venus and Pluto and and all the great planets that we get a chance to, to, to try to observe here, but the billions of galaxies in this universe all being made new. Paul says the universe is groaning and longing to be set free from this, this, uh, this, uh, this sinful, fallen picture of the world. And on that day, God is going to make everything new. Randy Alcorn suggests, and I think he's right, and this may be a little freaky, but he says that God has made the universe in this 3.0 version for, the, for us as believers to be able to explore all of it. The billions of galaxies and trillions of stars. He makes it all new. The universe is new. He makes the earth new as well. He doesn't do away with the earth. He makes it perfect. He brings it to a place of restored perfection so that there is no longer anything that is representative of the mar of sin that once caused it to be in a fallen state, right? It's brand new and beautiful. And he says in this passage of scripture that there's no longer any sea. Now, this is really interesting to me because John John paints a picture here that almost suggests that there's no water in this physical world in which we will go into. But that's not at all the case because we know that the river of life is going to flow from the throne of God, out from the throne of God, and it's going to have trees on either side, which we'll see in just a moment. What John's describing here is interesting to me. There's probably a hundred different possible interpretations, but I think a couple of of them are very interesting. Number one, John could possibly mean here about saying that there's no longer any sea. He could possibly mean that there is no longer the need for a sea which God throws our sins into and forgets about. That sea's gone. You don't need that anymore in the renewed perfect heaven. 
It's very possible, though, what John is actually seeing here is that the expanse called land actually comes back together in the new earth so that sea doesn't separate continents. Next week, you'll see why that's important because on this renewed earth that we'll get to enjoy, there are nations and kings. I'll show you that as this moves forward. So we see God um, renewing the entire universe so that we can enjoy. And then John in those moments sees something incredible. He sees a city, the city of God called the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And where is it coming down to? It's coming down to earth. This is overwhelming. It is either true and the most incredible statement maybe in this entire text because of what becomes uh, of earth when the New Jerusalem comes, or it's totally bogus and we are, we are, we are believing a lie. <laughs> it's not in between because what John's about to say about the New Jerusalem is fascinating. Here's what he says. The New Jerusalem, this city of God, comes down from heaven and it parks itself on this very planet in which we exist right now. Now, this is important to hear. Most people have believed the misunderstanding that we go to heaven and spend eternity with God somewhere else. John says, uh-uh. You will be resurrected into your 3.0 body, which we'll talk about next week, but all of that's coming back here. We're spending forever here. Huh. Is that good? In the veiled, flawed sense, it seems wrong, doesn't it? I don't want to come back here. But in the renewed sense, it's going to be amazing. Let's see what John sees in this new Jerusalem. So, So Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. It's going to come here. What does John say? As the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, John sees this incredible picture that God now dwells with man on earth. That in, the, that in the beginning in Adam and Eve's day, in Genesis 1 and 2, that God walked with man here in a state of perfection, but sin separated us from God. In the Old Testament, God is distant on the mountain, in the holy of holies, unreachable, inaccessible to the masses. But in the New Testament, in Jesus, now God walks among us. He tabernacles with us in the person of Jesus. He is God with us, Emmanuel. And then we see after Jesus ascends into heaven that God sends the Spirit, that Jesus sends the Spirit of God. God to, resi- to, to reside in our lives so that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But in this moment, in the 3.0 version, the fullness of the t- Trinity now begins to dwell on this earth. God now dwells among us. With no veils and no coverings, we will see him as he is. What will he do? He will wipe away our tears. Why are we crying in heaven? I'm not exactly sure. Here's my guess. My guess is that the tear-wiping ceremony happens just after judgment. My guess is I'll look and say, oh, oh, oof. I'll weep and shed some tears over missed opportunities and over sadness and sorrow, but God will wipe those away for forever I will be in his uncondemned state of perfection. And there will be no more death. Chuck Burton will be out of a job. No more funerals. And no more mourning. And no more crying. And no more pain.
And then John gets a chance to zoom in just a bit into this very detailed physical world. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 21, we see a view from the mountain. John says that after he sees the renewed universe, he steps in closer to a mountain great and high. How tall, how great and high, I don't know. It must be massive. For John is able to see the entire city of Jerusalem at a glance. I stood on the highest uh, uh, mountain basin or mountain peak, I guess, uh, ski resort in Breckenridge. At least that's what they claim. It's breathtaking to look over the mountain range and see the splendor and majesty of God's creation in the, in the, in the veiled view as we see it now. For John to be able to stand on a mountain great and high, every guy in the room should peek up because heaven is kind of boring if it's just confined to one little bitty city, even if it's a big city. Every guy in the room is like, i got to go to that place. I've got a whole lot of gold everywhere. That sounds like something for my wife, not for me. But John says, mm, that's not at all the case because John is on a mountain and he sees the grandeur and vastness of the country called the New Earth. Every guy in the room needs to hear this. You're not going to be stuck in a city, in a home, in a residence. You're going to get to explore the splendor of the renewed earth. You're going to see in a moment that this, this, is, this is going to be incredible. But just so you know, if you want to put on some camo, it's okay. There are going to be some trees. There's going to be some mountains. There's going to be some places to explore. John sees from a mountain, he views this place called the holy city. He now gets a chance to see it. Well, how does he describe it? He describes it a place that it radiates the glory of God. There is the radiation of the glory of God so great and mighty that there is no need for the sun. Now, John is not saying in this text that the sun and the moon don't exist. He's going to say later that there's no need for the sun and the moon because the radiance of God's glory lights every bit of this new Jerusalem. What does he see? He looks and he sees a high wall. We know that he gives us some description about this because he measures it. And, and, and by the way, church, he's going to measure in man's measurements. He's not measuring some symbolic sense. He's measuring the physical dimensions of the new Jerusalem. What does he see? He measures out the city walls. They are 200 feet thick. Why does this new Jerusalem have walls? Well, because it defines the actual borders of the city. Why is that important? Because it's just a city among the mass of the planet called Earth that has more than just the city. But the city walls define it. There are no need for protection against any enemies. We'll see in a moment that the gates are open. But it defines the actual city of the New Jerusalem. They are 200 feet thick. The walls have 12 gates. Every gate has the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And every gate is made of a single pearl. One commentator said that the reason why he believes that the, the gates were made of pearl is that it's a wonderful description of Jesus. An oyster brings into existence a pearl out of pain and suffering. And every gate is made of a single pearl, which very well may indicate the pain and suffering and struggle Jesus went through to get us access to the Father. What a great picture. The walls are made of jasper. 
Jasper is a beautiful stone. One commentator suggested that that word translated jasper could also be translated diamond. It could be that these walls are so perfectly clear that it's hard to tell exactly what the walls are made of, but they are made of precious stones. It has 12 gates. They're each made of pearls. Each gate has the name of, a, of one of the 12 tribes. There's foundations on this city. They are 12 layers thick. You can read about the foundations. This picture represents the fact that the architect and designer is God himself, and the foundation, as anyone knows in, who is in construction knows, the foundation is the most critical. In other words, this city is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. Its permanent location is going to be on this earth. There's 12 layers deep. The names of the 12 apostles are written on each one of those layers. They are the 12 apostles, not the 12 disciples, because Judas does not make it on the list. We have to go after Judas to see the apostles in the, in the book of Acts. They're listed there on each one of the foundations. They are 12 layers deep. How about the city itself? John measures it out, or is told to measure, and it is measured out at 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles deep, 1,400 miles high. It's a cube. Now, for those of you who would say, man, this seems like a very boring place. You need to understand something about this place. It's not just beautiful with gold and pearls and jasper and diamonds and precious stones. This is a city. What's in a city? Buildings. Homes. Parks. Fishing holes. Golf courses. We are not going to go walk down the streets of the Wizard of Oz, people. We're not going down the Emerald City. This is a place, a physical location that is going to look like a city. You will experience the city of God. Does technology take a 6,000-year detour back into the early ages of Adam and Eve? No, technology still exists in this new city. That's not a bad thing. Maybe not so much on the cell phone, smartphone, but all the technology will still be there. The city is made of pure gold. So is the great street that leads down the middle of the city. I think, I think just, for, just for image's sake, I want to show you for a moment how large the city of, called the New Jerusalem actually is. I want to show you a map of the United States of America for just a moment. That's a map of the good old USA. If you were to place the New Jerusalem 1400 by 1400 onto the actual United States, this is how big it would be. That's one city called New Jerusalem. 1400 by 1400 by 1400 high. Why is it 1400 high? I don't know. Maybe there's some skyscrapers 1400 miles high. Oh, by the way, you'll find this out this next week, but you will not be confined to your physical body like you are in this world. Going 1,400 miles in the air will not require American Airlines. John sees the outside of the city. He sees this incredible city. It, it radiates the glory of God. It is as real a physical location as anything you've ever experienced on this earth and then some. It's a city, and there's country. And there's 12 gates. Randy Alcorn suggests, and I think he may be right on this, that each of the 12 gates sit on each of the sides of the city. The distance between the gates, 1,400 miles. 
Randy Alcorn suggests that out of each gate may very well represent an entire new terrain. One is mountainous for those who love the rugged world. One is the beachfront ladies. <laughs> After John sees all of these things, now he moves into the actual city itself. And in Revelation chapter 21, verses 22, all the way through chapter 22, verse 5, now John gets access inside the city. What does he see? One of the first things he notices is there is no temple. Now, this would be powerful for a Jew, not so much for Gentiles in the 21st century because we're, we're not connected to a physical location called the temple, but this is a powerful imagery. In other words, there is no longer a need for a place of worship like we're experiencing right now. God is at the center, and he is the temple. God is on his throne, and he is the place of worship. God is now residing on this earth. And there's no need for light, as we said just a moment ago. God's radiance is the light that the city needs. I thought it was very interesting, church, that, that, the, that the father is seen as the one who lights the city, but the son, the lamb, is called the lamp. I've never, ever seen that before this week. Forgive me, I've read it a hundred times, never seen that before. Why is the lamp different than the light? I don't know for sure, but the lamp is a picture to me of intimacy. If God's radiance covers the whole, whole city because of his glory, then the lamp, the, 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 the lamb who is the lamp is the one who provides the intimate setting and the closeness. Maybe that's true. I'm not sure. But we see here inside the holy city. Now, this is really interesting. <laughs> what John sees in the city is that nations come and go. What does that mean? That nations will exist in this resurrected 3.0 version. Remember, John is going to see every tribe and tongue represented before the throne of God. He is going to see every nation. In other words, one of the things I think we all understand is that nationality is significant. That there are no Jew and Greek and Gentile, slave or free in Christ. But we don't lose ourselves. I'll be very much Matt Blair who lived in the United States of America. Nations still exist in the 3.0 version. So do kings. They come and bring stuff into the city. We're going to see more of that next week. Nations exist. So that means that in the greater planet called Earth, that the New Jerusalem is a city, but it's very likely that there's populations that live outside the actual city that come and go into the city. In other words, this 3.0 version will not be so unfamiliar to you. You will not go, I've never experienced anything like this. You will say, I can see the connection to my old life. This is just the restored new version. Notice what happens in this text, though. There is no sin, nor anything that can be harmful to anybody in this new, in this new world. John then moves in to see the very throne room of God. He gets a glimpse of the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb, and he sees a, 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 a river coming down out of the throne, coming down the great street, and on each side of the river there are trees. Now, I am so disappointed in the church because we've described this much like the Emerald City and the Wizard of Oz. Again, terrible description. A throne, a real river, and real trees. They are lining the throne of God on either side. These trees are for the healing of the nations. We'll talk a whole lot more about that in just a moment. But notice what is not there. The tree of life is there. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is not there. <laughs> Good news, no longer any chance for us to eat from the tree we should not eat of. 
that's gone. But the tree of life is there. And on each side of this river, there are trees that bear fruit. Now, this is John's physical description of the city. I want to do something for just a moment. This is where the church has failed you. The church has made this place so unfamiliar that you don't want to go. The church, I think, has made the city of God, the New Jerusalem, and the entire renewed earth such a foreign place that you don't want to go. The truth is, is that there is great continuity between the world now and the world to come. I'm going to give you just one excerpt from, from, uh, from Randy Alcorn's book. It is a great, great picture of what's to come. It comes from chapter 23. If you're reading his book, Heaven, you will read this again when you read it. Listen to these words. This world, including its natural wonders, gives us foretaste and glimpses of the next world. These people, including ourselves, gives us foretaste and glimpses of the new people to come. This life, including its culture, gives us foretaste and glimpses of the next life. For those of you who love art, there'll be an art district. For those of you who love music, I'll describe it in vivid detail next week. The music is going to be out of this world. If you like four-part harmony, southern gospel, which is the best music on the planet. <laughs> Spatters. I lost my millennials just now. What if there are more than just three parts to harmony? If we take literally the earthly depictions of life on the new earth, it allows us to make a direct connection with our current lives. When I'm eating with people here, enjoying food and friendships, it's a bridge to when I'll eat there, enjoying food and friendships. This isn't making a leap into the dark of a shadowy afterlife. It's just taking a few natural steps into the light Scripture gives us. Every joy on earth, including the joy of reunion, is an inkling, a whisper of greater joy. The Grand Canyon, the Alps, the Amazon rainforest, the Serengeti Plain, these are rough sketches of the new earth. One day, we may say, as a character he writes in one of his own novels said, the best parts of the old world were sneak previews of this one, like little foretaste, like licking the spoon from Mama's beef stew, an hour before supper. I wish he would have said, like licking the cake batter before the whole cake is baked. When you go and experience the 3.0 version, every joy you can imagine here is going to be the joys we experience there. You will be you It's experiencing a very real physical world in which you will enjoy being the very you God created you to be forever. Next week, I'm going to be describing in vivid detail what we will be doing, the actual things that will be taking place and taking part in and of. I'm going to give you the rundown on the activities, the way you will exist, the way that you will think, what, you will, what you'll be able to process and comprehend, what you'll be doing. It will not be boring. 
It will be fascinating, and I can't wait to see you on that day or, or next Sunday when we talk about that. But, but before, we, before we leave today, <laughs> here's my prayer. My prayer is that you, as you read and as you study and as you learn, develop a longing for this place that God is preparing for you. That, that as you begin to learn about the promises to come, that you would hold a little more loosely onto this world and that you would be a little more hopeful and not overwhelmed no matter what comes your way. Because Jesus has said our hearts do not have to be troubled because he's prepared a place for us. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Hey, this is Pastor Matt Blair. Thank you so much for taking time to check out our podcast today at solacechurch.com. You know, we realize that it's possible as you listen to this message today that God may have spoken to your heart about something. So if you made any kind of spiritual decision, we would love to know about that. You can email us at info at solacechurch.com and let us know what happened in your life today. Once again, thank you so much for taking time to check out this podcast.